So this evening, I would like to look at, explore ethics, compassion, and wisdom. And there is actually two texts I find very useful in terms of what we call a modern ethics, Buddhist text. And the first one I won't really talk about, but I would recommend it to anybody, which is the Sigalavada Sutta. And if you're interested in it, I have a copy, and then I can leave it on the table in the dining room, and you can you know, look at it during the, the week. And what is interesting about that one is that it's from the Pali discourse. And basically, it's about condition. It's looking at ethics in terms of condition. What are the, and really in terms of harmfulness and harmlessness. What are the conditions that help me to be harm, harmless? What are the conditions that makes harmfulness to myself, to others? It's also about cultivating friendship. It's also very interestingly about um, how to earn your money and what to do with it. And it's also some uh, in suggestion about you know, how the you could say the boss treats his worker and the worker treats the, the boss. And actually, one of the things about the, the boss is that he should give them holiday and uh, work according to their capacity and give them goodies time to time. <laughs> quite enlightened for those days. So it's quite an interesting text, very much looking at condition, conditionality. But the text I want to talk about, because very likely you are less familiar with it, is actually the Bodhisattva precept, which you find in the Chinese and Korean tradition. And I translated it, so I'm very familiar with it. And what is interesting is that in the preamble to presenting the Bodhisattva precept, you have this very beautiful passage where it says that the precept are like a lamp, in a way, illuminating the night, clarifying things. And it also says that the precept, cultivating the precept, is like actually getting out of jail, getting out of being imprisoned in the sense of self, possibly imprisoned in the suffering. And that actually ethics, the precepts, our past, to liberation. And what is interesting in this text is that it really sees, in a way, the basis for these ethics, for the precept, as compassion, altruism, liberation, but also that, in a way, what is interesting is that it points out that in order to be ethical, you need to be mindful. That's you know, one of the kind of a very important condition and the reason I translated this text, apart from the fact that I listened to it uh, once a month or once every two weeks, it was recited. And it's a 48, 10 major precepts, 48 minor precepts. And at the beginning, I had no idea what it said. And as my Korean got better, I could understand what it said. And what I thought, I realized is, the way people behave in the temple is according to that text. 
So I could really see that he had an influence in the way they behaved. One of, one of the things I would see was Master Cousin, if we went into the field and he saw a cow, he would pat it and say something sotto voce. And so finally one day I asked, but what are you doing? And actually it's in the precept that whenever you meet any sentient being, you should come close to them and sotto voce say, may you be reborn and awaken. So that's what he was doing, wishing well to the cat, wishing a, sp a speedy awakening in some way, according to conditions. But the one that struck me the most when I was there was what I called, over time, the ritual of forgiveness. They had a ritual which was that if you made a mistake, you just had to go and bow three times to somebody a little higher up in the hierarchy and say, I made a mistake and that was it. That was it. They would never mention it again. And what was interesting was a Westerner, uh, when, for example, Master Cousin pointed out that we made a mistake because we did not know about the ritual, we would go into long explanation about why, yes, what I did was not so good, but I had, you know, really good reason for doing it. And I could see that Master Kuzan seems to think, why are you making this so complicated, you know? <laughs> and what I found beautiful with this uh, ritual was that the fact that they really, really forgave it. So in a way, it was kind of reciprocal. The idea was that you really understood your mistake. You really understood the condition of the mistake. You also understood it was impermanent, so you did not need to do it again. You could learn from it. And at the same time, they say, okay, yeah, you've done this. And let's hope you won't do it again. And it truly would never be mentioned again. When I think often in the modern world, especially possibly in the, in the West, I feel that we forgive, but we don't forget. So that, you know, we might forgive, but you know, later on we might serve it again. <laughs> and that's what really impressed me, that they really, it was really forgiven. This was it. And this actually comes from one of the precepts, which says, Refrain from being, because they have titles and then they have explanation. Refrain from being angry and treat well those who ask for forgiveness. And then the explanation said, it's a duty of the Bodhisattva. So a Bodhisattva is somebody who aspires to awakening. So it's a duty of Bodhisattva to be kind <coughs> and not quarrelsome and compassionate. So then a, a bodhisattva should not abuse living creature and should not vent anger on an inanimate object. <laughs> and this was written in about 440 AD. And you realize people don't change much. <laughs> so this was in China. And you can imagine, you know, somebody kicking a cart or whatever 
And nowadays we might kick the car or you might kick the computer if it doesn't work. And anyway, that's why I like about this precept is because it really shows that at one level it deals with the same human being, the same tendency. What causes harm, what does not cause harm. And then it finishes with if somebody begs for forgiveness and your anger is not appeased, that is a serious offense. So that what he's saying <coughs> is that in a way, when somebody asks for forgiveness, in a way, can you creatively engage with that difficulty? Then just to, to show you a little how these presets work and in terms of mindfulness. The first one is a very common one. Refrain from taking life. You could say refrain from causing harm. But then the explanation says, do not perform the act do not cause someone else to do it. Do not do it in a roundabout way. Do not create the cause and condition for it to happen. Do not develop a means to do it. So basically what it's looking at is not just like rule and regulation, don't do this. But it's looking at the condition for something to happen. And it's also in a way back to the mindfulness to see that we might not cause harm directly. But when we do what I call negative gossiping, you can actually create a lot of harm in a roundabout way. You can also cause someone else to cause harm through it. So it's actually in a way looking again at the condition for our action, being mindful, being reflective. So I'm not going to go all over the text. I don't have it with me. But if uh, you're interested, you can always buy it <laughs> or find it on the internet. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to look at now was, in a way, what I call creative wise compassion. And another thing which is interesting about this text, the path of compassion, the Bodhisattva precept, is that you have a lot of precepts which are basically about being in the world, about acting in the world. Like it says, save people who are in difficulty, rescue sentient beings, help those who are sick, treat them as if, you would, as if they were Buddhas themselves. So you a lot of the text is actually about what I would call creatively engaging compassionately with the suffering of the world or trying to lessen the suffering in the world. But now what I like to look at is what I call creative wise compassion and to see another aspect of the practice, vipassana. So we have samatha, concentration, and we have vipassana, looking deeply. Of course, often it's translated as insight. And we have to see that in a way, samatha and vipassana can be looked in two aspects, cultivation and effect. The cultivation is a concentration for samatha, for vipassana is looking deeply. The effect with the samatha is calm. The effect with vipassana is insight or what I would call clarity. And so in a way to see, it's not enough to cultivate concentration. 
we also need to bring together the vipassana aspect, the looking display aspect, what I also call experiential inquiry. So really, in a way, going in the experience. And so what we do in the vipassana is actually trying to really know for ourselves. And I think that's where the wisdom comes in, experiential wisdom. Know for ourselves this characteristic, nearly like at a molecular level, at a being level. And at one level, it's simple to do. For example, with change. We just try to be aware that things change, which is very easy to deal with sounds, for example. Just being aware of sounds arising, passing away. Tomorrow we're going to do the theme will be uh, awareness of the body. And again, we can be aware of sensation arising and passing away. I am very uh, reactive to mosquito. And I'm really aware of sensation arising and passing away. I get a little, and I think, is there something or not? Or is it just kind of, you know, my skin doing its thing? Or my mind doing its thing? Preempting. So, you know, it's kind of, but then it passes. It comes, it goes. And at one level, it seems so simple. Things change. We all know that. But actually, we don't live it. That's what is very interesting. Intellectually, we know things change. But do we experientially work from a changing point of view? That if I have a thought, this could change. If I have a problem, this could change. If I have a feeling, this could change. To me, this is an interesting practice to do in daily life to ask myself, how long is this going to last? And if it doesn't last very long, forget about it. If it lasts a certain time, then I have to do something about it. And I would say, in a way, one of the key to wise compassion is actually really that vipassana aspect of the practice, that really knowing for ourselves the three characteristics. And it uncovers, that's what is interesting. Because when you hear about the three characteristics, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self, you think, that's not, a f that's not fun. You know? This is a bit dry, and this is a, you know, not fun. But personally, I would say, if we really, really know them, actually out of that, arise compassion. And actually, often it's not knowing them experientially, which causes us to be uncompassionate. If we take the first one, impermanence, you have two kinds of impermanence, you could say. You have ultimate impermanence, which means death. We are alive now, and at some point, we will die. Things exist now. At some point, they might break down. And what we have to be very careful with impermanence is that we don't use it as fatalism. Oh, the car breaks down. Too bad. It's impermanent. You know, that's a witch. I think we have to be careful there to, to not kind of 
it becomes fatalistic and it actually stops you from creatively engaging with what is going on. And I used to be a little like that at the beginning with impermanence. Oh, the vase is broken. Who cares? It's impermanent and it's not mine anyway. So, <laughs> you know, and you could really in that way, you know, really don't engage, push things away. And it's only when I saw my father die, I saw his last breath, and then I understood. I really understood what my teacher said, that our life rests upon a single breath. And that actually this is a very profound sta statement and a very compassionate statement. Because when I had that experience, of seeing that last breath, this amazing compassion arose. I really started to look at people in such a different way. I looked at my mother in such a different way. Instead of looking at her in terms of our history together, I could see her as this human being. Who is breathing? Who is suffering? And it so changed our experience together. I remember some time ago, my mother come up. I'm cooking in the kitchen. My mother comes up and says, I have an accident, but it's okay, never mind, you cook. And she comes down. And being, you know, the good daughter, and when cooking is sacred with my mother, you know, I continue to cook for about 30 seconds. And I think, wait a minute. She said she had an accident. I must do something about this. So I kind of stop the fire and everything, and then I go down. So instead of going into the role, mother, daughter, she tells me to do it, and I do it. I said, wait a minute. You know, this is a human being who has had an accident. Let's, you know, take care of it. And I went down, and I took care of it. But I could see how we can so easily be in the role. And then the compassion frees. Instead of seeing the human being in that moment, in those conditions, and creatively engaging with it. And so in a way, to, to me, that's the ultimate change. The first thing about death, I mean, for us, is that we are not dead yet. <laughs> so in a way, what can we do with this life? And how can we be with other people's life who are so fragile? And kind of in a way, to me, it also helped me to enjoy more people now. I don't know when they're going to pass away. I don't know when I'm going to pass away. So how can I enjoy it now? When I first got married to Stephen, I used to have this weird habit of being afraid he was going to die. So I would sit in meditation, and then I would go into this fantasy. Ah, oh, he's going to die, and then I'm going to... What can I do? And I could do this, I could do that. And I would be then very modeling. Ooh, Steve! <laughs> and he used to look at me, what's the matter with you? <laughs> and then I thought, but this is crazy. You know, I'm kind of, you know, preempting. Instead of enjoying it. And to me, that's what I do. To kind of, you know, just enjoy the presence, our life, anybody's life any human beings, living beings' life, 
to enjoy the fact that there are all these wallabies, you know, Ooh, wallabies. Then you see them again, but still they're wallabies. <laughs> or the birds, or whatever, just to be aware they're alive now. And you can appreciate them now because you don't know how long or how long they're going to last. But the other aspect of impermanence is change. And actually, it's a gift of change, the potential for change. The fact that things can change. I'm not saying they're going to change fast. You know, impermanence is not saying things are going to change fast. But it's saying there is a potential for change. At some point, something can change. And so to me, this is one of the most uncompassionate things we can do to ourselves and to others when we say, I am always like this. You will always be like this. Basically, you're saying every second, every minute, every hour, every week, every day, every year, forever after, they're going to be like this. I mean, talk about fixing. It's mega fixing. But even if you try it, you can't. Even if you try it, you can't. So to me, this is in a way a compassionate moment when you see that even in the person is not changing now, they can change at some point. I have a friend at the beginning, uh, she kind of, you know, liked to meet us and everything and I, had, she had trouble. So I always had good idea about what she could do, which she never did. Uh, and so things did not really change. And then I realized the only thing she wanted was for me to love her, which that I could do easily, so I was happy to do that. But she kept getting into the same thing, kind of which pro provoked the same problem. And so one might have thought, she will always be like this. But what I found wonderful is a few years ago, she started to change. She started to learn. Something happened. And so time to time with Stephen, we have this little kind of joy. Because we get a letter and we say, hmm, yeah, <laughs> she's OK. You know, she's, she, she sees things more clearly. She's creating less suffering for, our, for herself. And it makes her so happy that actually she changed. She is changing, but she could only change in a good time, not in any other people's time. And I think to me this is compassion. If we really understand that, then we can have what I would call that patient compassion, that wise compassion for people having the potential to change at some point. Then you have the next one is Dukkha. And dukkha has three aspects. You have unreliability, unsatisfactoriness, and dukkha dukkha. And unreliability is, of course, because things are impermanent. Because things are changing, they're unreliable. Doesn't mean they change every two seconds. I think we have to be careful here. Impermanence doesn't mean that everything changes all the time, 
in weird ways. <laughs> there is a certain continuity. I mean, tomorrow I doubt extremely that I will become a pink elephant. <laughs> I mean, I could have a heart attack in the night, but pink elephant, I think, is extremely doubtful. So there is a certain continuity to the way I am, which time to time is broken by little or bigger changes. So that's why things are unreliable. Sometimes you are in good health, and sometimes maybe not so good health, and just you can not totally predict it. So, and you know, things are unreliable. I mean, to me that's, but you see, if when things are more reliable, which is what happened in the modern world, then we have less patience with unreliability. This is, this is a thing, with all our insurances and all things working, when things don't work, it's like, wait a minute. This should not be this way, like with the luggage. Or with my favorite, the volcano. I mean, you're far from Europe, so you might not have heard about the volcano two years ago, but it was fantastic. You know, it has an unpronounceable name. And for three months, we all knew about volcano, its name and its specificity, and I was, we were stuck in it. You know, we were in England, and by 30 minutes, <laughs> the plane did not go because of the volcano. So we had to find another way to go to France, which was a bit complicated. And that you, can, you could not predict it. You know, the volcano, the ashes, that's mega unreliability. You know, so what do you do then? Do you creatively engage or do you fight? The next one is unsatisfactoriness. And what is interesting with that one is actually the way we think that things are going to be satisfactory. And one other thing about unreliability first, in terms of compassion, is that if you think you're always reliable, if you think your friend must be always reliable, then often compassion goes. Recently I had somebody like that. She was not well. Her best friend was not well. And she expected her best friend to be much nicer to her because she was ill. But because the best friend was also ill, she expected the other one to be more up to the mark. And then they were very disappointed in each other and then became not so compassionate. And that's the thing, we have to be careful with this. And reliability is saying be careful of expectation. Because the higher our expectation, often the compassion is going to go. And to see that, so the, the connection between the two. Unsatisfactoriness is the same. In a way, we want to be satisfied. We want something, but we want more than satisfaction. We want lasting satisfaction. So we want the, the job, the book, the practice, the teacher, the retreat, whatever it is. 
there is this hope that if I get this, I will get lasting satisfaction, or if because I'm a Buddhist, not lasting, but at least for a year. You know? <laughs> but what is interesting is that generally it doesn't last very long, you know, because it's unreliable. So we can have momentary satisfaction. And I would say, enjoy it while it lasts, <laughs> because it's not going to, you know? And so in a way, it's, it's the same when your friends, you know, suddenly they are in a funny mood. And you think, what's the matter? And you think it's because of me. <coughs> but most of the time, it's because of them. <laughs> you know, it's, it's because they have some problem, they are unhappy, and they don't have the space. They cannot, at that moment, be compassionate because they have to take care of themselves. The same way that if we are in difficulty, we have less compassion because it's not easy. So in a way, to see, in a way, what, again, back to this expectation that this should last for a long time, which then kind of makes us, again, take things for granted. And personally, I think what we become addicted is not even to the satisfaction, but to the hope that this is going to do it. And so then we have all this fantasy about the hope. And then we get the thing which generally is disappointing. Then you have the next hope. And off we go. And that's, often you are, that's why often we are so much happier about our holiday <laughs> before we get there. Because, you know, for two I mean, once I took my uh, sister and my niece to London. And for two months before we went, they were so happy. And then when we get there, it was OK, but not as good as we <laughs> when they dreamt about it. It was very interesting to see that. And then you have the third aspect, which is dukkha dukkha. And this is actually mental pain, emotional pain, physical pain. And again, tomorrow Stephen will talk about embracing suffering. And I think this one is not saying you must suffer, but it's saying no suffering. And if you know suffering, you know two things. That when you suffer, it's painful and it is isolating. And the first time I was ill was when I was in Korea. And I started to have trouble with my stomach. And what was interesting for me was to see my first thought, which was, why me? Which meant, why not somebody else? <laughs> not very compassionate. <laughs> and then to realize, but this is a suffering the Buddha is talking about. And to realize then that nobody could have my stomach ache for me, however empathetic. I had to deal with it myself. But this kind of, in a way, gave rise in myself to compassion for people who are ill. To see that they suffer, that as soon as you are ill, in a way, you become isolated in those conditions. So of course, we can try to reach out. We can try to be there for the person. But nobody can have their pain instead of them. And to realize that, I feel, bring forth this compassion. But again, I would say this creative, wise, patient compassion, this understanding compassion. And you have the last one, 
which is about anatta. And anatta, which is not self, which over time was developed into the concept of emptiness, later on also the concept of interdependence. What we have to see with not self is that it doesn't mean that there is nobody. But it just means that the self does not exist independently. It basically means that we do not exist independently. So it's back to conditionality. It's trying to make us see that thing arise out of conditions. And again, I think to me this, um, the practice partly is to make us aware that we are this flow of inner condition meeting outer condition. And so that's what the non-self is about. It's not that we disappear in a puff of smoke, but that we actually realize, understand more our multi-perspectiveness, that we are made up of so many conditions. And so in a way, the practice becomes this exploration of this multiplicity of conditions. And one can discover more and more. And also uh, why not self is because we're not fixed. I mean, that's the reason that life evolves is because things can change. And what is interesting to look at is in a way a photo of ourselves as a baby and a photo of ourselves now. I mean, I have a photo of uh, one of my um, great niece, age a day and a half, and next to her, and you have this tiny baby, and next to her, my grandmother, who then was age 86, was totally, totally, she was beautiful. She looked like an American Indian, Native American, full of, uh, she looked beautiful. And so you have these two faces next to each other. So her whole life, you know, in between. And the change from the, my grandmother too, once was like that baby. And then she became my grandmother. And all the change in between. And that's what basically the not-self is saying. There is no fixed self, but this condition, growing, evolving, changing, etc. So that in ways, showing us that we are a process. But how do we feel? This is interesting in terms of that. How do we feel? Back to the contact, back to the grasping. Generally, we have this feeling that in the middle here, there is something. There is something which I could call like a pin cushion. So there is this pin cushion in the middle here. And anything that happens to us, especially negative, are like pins boom, getting stuck on the pincushion. <laughs> and then, you know, so in the middle here, we have all these pincushions, all these pins, especially painful ones. And then time to time, we move them. Then you have little drops of blood. Oh, that one was painful. Yes, yes, yes. Ooh. And in a way, not self is basically saying, there is no pincushion. <laughs> there is no place 
for things to stick. So things do exist, I exist, but there is not necessarily a place where things can stick. And I would say that the, the practice is about de-sticking. Like we kind of start with lots of Velcro, <laughs> and the practice is in a way dissolving the Velcro, so that then thing can float more freely than instead of <laughs> getting stuck. Another feeling we have in terms of this self is that because we have this self and it's ours and it's precious and it's fragile, then we have to be careful of the others because they're going to get us. There is often this feeling, you know, they're going to get us. So then, again, it's like we are this self just peering over walls because the walls protect us against the bad guys out there who are going to get us, get this fragile self. And in a way to see, again, we don't need walls. And I think that's where the loving kindness meditation comes in, to dissolving that sense of fear of the other. And to see, in a way, we're all in the same boat. We all want to be happy. We all suffer. Suffering is painful and isolating. And so I see the practice as, in a way, dissolving the wall, so that then we can look at the world in such a different way, with so much less fear. And if there is no fear, again, there can be so much more compassion. There can be so much more loving kindness for the other. And the last one is to see this life, this being that we are, asking ourselves, what does it depend upon? What does my life, your life, depend upon? And my life, my survival, depends upon condition outside of myself. The food I eat, the air I breathe, the medicine I take, the clothes I wear, the house I live in, it all comes from the outside. So in a way for this being to survive, all the energies that is used for me to survive, and the same for everybody to survive. And that's where the concept, the idea of interdependence comes in. The fact that we are not isolated. We often have this feeling of isolation, of separation back to the wall, when actually there is no wall. <laughs> And actually, we share the world together. This is what this not-self is about. Discovering that we share the world, that we depend on the world. And that's why one of the uh, things which is interesting to do with the meditation on the breath is to look deeply into the breath with Vipassana and ask a question experientially, what is this air that I breathe? And generally, if you do that, you realize that you're breathing the same air as everybody in this room. 
your air go into my lung, mine goes into your lung. That's why it gets a little kind of stuffy after a while. <laughs> we breathe with the trees, animals, everything. But often we have this strange feeling. This is my air. <laughs> and this is good stuff. <laughs> Pure, guaranteed, organic. <laughs> and your air, I don't know about that one. <laughs> When actually it's not so at all. It's all coming, going. So in a way, that's what the not-self is about. Is again, this discovery of the condition and discovery of the other. And in a way, discovery also of our basic humanity in terms of survival. And which brings me back to the loving-kindness meditation. And the loving-kindness meditation, for me, one of the important things about it is that it can help us to look beyond our idea <coughs> about ourselves, about others, and to try to reach out to this human being who is alive, who is breathing, who is formed by inner condition, meeting outer condition, and wishing it well. In a way, opening to this life that is fleeting, that is fragile. And how can I creatively engage with it? How can I develop its potential? So that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. I would say creative engagement is both. I think creative engagement goes from you have a funny feeling and asking yourself how long is it going to last to you have a thought, you say to yourself because you have some obstacle, I am hopeless and questioning, am I hopeless? Possibly not. To, in a way, what I would call this intuitive, instant creativity, where suddenly you respond in a way you might never have responded before. Because in that moment, you are totally in the situation. So you're not preempting it, you're not pasting it, but you really say, okay, what's going on here? And how can I be in this? But not even thinking it. You go to the situation and you respond to it. And often you surprise yourself by being really creative. Just kind of suddenly you say the right thing, which you had never thought before. So I would say many different aspects to this creative engagement. Some which are in a way you could say more sudden and some which are more gradual or some where you see yourself thinking something and thinking, if I go there, like with the waiting yesterday, I'm going to go in a very dark place. 
do I want to go there? Or do I want to do something else? So I think it kind of, again, depends on the condition. So there is kind of, I would say, different aspect to the creative engagement. But what I would say is that the quietness, the clarity, the samatha, the vipassana, the mindfulness, dissolve the grasping. And if you dissolve the grasping, you, you don't just have empty space. But actually, dissolving the grasping helps the creative potential to be more activated, to be more in action. That's why I talk about creativity, because I think it's not just something going. That something going helps something else, which actually is very creative, to come out. So if there is nothing else, then now there is some walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.